Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're talking term limits and that wacky first energy gift card settlement on Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn on a Monday here with Layla Tassi, Laura Johnston, and Lisa Garvin. Hope you all got to enjoy some of that great weather we had over the weekend. Let's talk some news. Some people think term limits are the best way to get rid of entrenched politicians who block progress, but is there an argument to be made that getting rid of term limits might improve political discourse? Lisa. I think the argument is there, and I am definitely, I have always been against term limits, but it's very popular with voters. In a 1992 referendum, 68% of Ohio voters supported term limits for the legislature and also other statewide elected offices. Um, Here in Ohio, they can only serve a total of two four-year terms, but then they can move to another legislative body after that. So they can continue there. And the governor has been term limited, limited since 1954. So um, there's an argument for term limits. There are actually a group called U.S. Term Limits. Um, they feel that longtime politicians lose touch with their constituents. Uh, Bernie Moreno is the Ohio chair of this group. And he says, people are just there way too long and we need fresh ideas and thinking. And American Policy Roundtable President David Zanotti says, you know, to get legislation considered before 1992, you had to attend all three of House Speaker Vern Riff's birthday parties to get any, any legislation done. And he said the seniority culture is broken. But a study from the University of Akron, um, soon after we uh, in, in, you know, put in term limits, they find that Ohio leaders actually disliked term limits. They felt that it increased partisanship. It was harder to pass bills. The process became more chaotic and confrontational. And also these freshman uh, legislators were less courteous. They were unwilling to compromise. And also interesting, I didn't think of it, but it actually allowed lobbyists to gain influence. And also freshmen became dependent on the House Speaker and the Senate President for guidance. So, yeah, so they feel like, you know, term limits result in a pool of office holders with little institutional memory and expertise. And then that transfers power to the executive branch, party operations and lobbyists. So I thought that was a very interesting way to look at it. Although you have a hard time saying the executive branch in Ohio has any power right now. This came up because University Heights Charter Review Commission had actually proposed uh, getting rid of the term limits they have there. They believe it is creating the, the polarized nature of our political discussions. And I see that because if you come in and you're going to be gone in, in, in short order, you're not going to form those across the aisle relationships that can last for a long time. And the argument that it makes the lobbyists the experts in the legislature, I mean, that's clearly happened here. The lobbyists run that place. They get whatever they want, and then they throw some money at these guys. Uh, but it's, but you, like you said, Lisa, it's popular. And so politicians like Bernie Moreno, who's quoted in this thing, 
they don't want to have the discussion. They just want to pander. They know that people say, ah, throw the bums out. And so you get away from a thoughtful debate about what is best for policymaking. Yeah, there's a whole lot of voters that are against it. But what would happen if you had the kind of full-throated discussion we had on issue one? Might people start to see there's some nuance and maybe you expand the term limits instead of two terms, you make it three terms or, or something. But this idea of throw the bums out, I mean, Sharon Brown has been a very effective senator. Yes, he I mean, has. He, I don't think anybody can argue that he has not been a great senator for the state of Ohio. He's gotten a lot of things done. Would we be better off if he had gotten the boot after a couple of terms? I don't know that we would have. And, you know, in Texas, in Houston, Sheila Jackson Lee has been a congresswoman there for like 30 years and she gets stuff done. You know, and Mike Curtin, uh, Sabrina Eaton talked to Mike Curtin, who's a former uh, Columbus dispatch reporter and former lawmaker. And he says, you want people with policymaking chops, not a bunch of amateurs who don't know anything. And he feels like it's contributed to this incredible tribalism that we see in today's politics. And, you know, as a member of the editorial board, of course, we interview candidates to make endorsements in local and state races and, and national races. And I've been stunned at how many people don't know the issues. They don't know how politics work, but yet they want to go and, and change things. The argument in favor of term limits is that Washington is polarized without them. I mean, we have the same kind of fighting going on in Washington that we have in Ohio, where you do have term limits. So I don't know if term limits play into polarization, but you can certainly argue that in the Columbus State House, the lobbyists are in charge down there. I also like the um, the argument that brought up Larry Householder, you know, that that Larry Householder could not get the kind of power his predecessors had without term limits. And so there was a check because people know he's going to be gone. He can't be as powerful as House Speaker as they were earlier. It's a great discussion. I, I finished reading it and I thought, I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> The thing with Ohio, though, is they just flip flop between the chambers. And I realize there's not as many senators as there are representatives, but like these people go back and forth for mm -hmm. years. Well, but maybe maybe that should be stopped and maybe that would end some of the polarity. I don't know. If you haven't read Sabrina's story, it's on cleveland.com and it's a winner. It's one of the best discussions I've seen of this. And we did it through the prism of our civil discourse series. We got a series. We're examining ways where we can elevate the conversation and get away from the binary. I'm right. You're wrong. That seems to populate it. And I, and in this story, the only person that made that kind of ridiculous quote was Bernie Moreno. You know, he's describing Washington as a disaster. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We finally have a full answer as to why the First Energy HB6 settlement is in gift cards instead of checks or credits on our electric bills. Laura, what is it before we rip it to pieces? <laughs> well, according to the attorneys for this case, First Energy adamantly refused to issue credits because that would have required going through the PUCO one more time, another round of approvals. That would have been easier to get through the PUCO than raising rates, but they didn't want to try. That's what they said anyway. And apparently cutting checks is really expensive. It costs $1.50 per check because you have to pay the bank, you have to pay uh, 
the post office to send them. So seeing as that people are getting between like $1 and $10, you would have lost a lot of money in cutting those checks. Most people received around $8. But yeah, there's a huge problem here because most vendors don't allow you to split a bill over multiple forms of payment. And again, these are electronic gift cards. They're not even something you can physically hold in your hand. So you can't buy much more online than, you know, a burrito. Yeah, I'm throwing the flag. This is ridiculous. The argument that to give it back in the way that they took it in the first place requires another PUCO review. Who cares? They didn't do it because there are people like me that are probably not going to claim the money because it's just too much Mm -hmm. of a nuisance for $7.82. And that's what they're counting on. They're counting on people to say, oh, for Christ's sakes, I'm not going to do this for that small amount of money. You know, who knows if they won't screw up your personal information and then they'll leak it and you'll have credit locks and things. I mean, it's just not worth it. It should have been in the bill. It's it's ridiculous. I did hear from a reader who said that his reading of our story was that you couldn't get a check, but he did. He he rejected the gift card and is getting oh, a check. Oh. And I guess they take something out of it to pay for that. I don't know. But he he said I, you guys should make that clear. We should if it's not clear. I didn't I didn't know that. But he said I don't feel like I didn't realize that either. There are He a, said he's getting a check. He did he did do whatever it took on the form to rebuff the card. And it is coming from a spammy sounding right. email. So people might not, might have automatically deleted it. Right. It's like, I don't remember what it is, but they said they're thinking about changing the email provider. So it doesn't sound so spammy. Apparently if you scroll to the very bottom of this email, you can add your funds to a prepaid card on Amazon or use as Apple pay. So there is a step that you could put into some kind of account that you could actually use it for something. So I hope people take the time to do that. Cause you're right. If we don't claim these fees, if we say, you know what? It's just not worth it to me. That means First Energy wins and First Energy gets to keep that money. But this is scummy because the attorneys are getting paid millions. Yeah. This was $13 right. million so, dollars for the so attorneys. So the attorneys go in claiming to represent us when they're only representing themselves. They make this stupid deal that, that keeps First Energy much more whole than it should be while they get paid and we all get the spammy email. It's It shouldn't be allowed. This is not acceptable. Uh, the way it and a reminder that this is a payout because of HB6, because of the millions of dollars in bribes. So this isn't just like, oh, well, they messed up, you know, whatever. This is due to HB6, people. This is the yeah. scummiest bribery that has ever taken place yeah, in Ohio. And it, this whole case continues to be scummy. This is wrong. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A topic that always seems to rile up taxpayers is the public funding of sports stadiums and how teams blackmail cities into putting up the dollars or face losing a beloved team. In Cleveland, this has resulted in some hefty taxpayer debt. Layla, what's the history and is there a solution? Well, for starters, most people know this, but we'll we'll cover these bases here. Gateway Economic Development Corporation owns the baseball and basketball facilities. So that's Progressive Field and Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. They fund improvements to those facilities, plus improvements at Brown Stadium using money collected from the syntax on alcohol and cigarettes that was approved by voters back in the 90s, and then it was extended in 2014 for another couple decades. Basically, each of the three teams gets about $92 million from those collections for stadium improvements, and the contracts... The current contracts call for for Gateway to pay for any capital improvements that exceed $500,000. Well, the Cavs have have burned through their allowance faster than the other teams. And and some say it's because 
their arena is indoors, which carries some expenses you don't have with an open-air stadium, like air conditioning and roof repair, stuff like that. At the moment, the Cavs only have about $10 million left in their allotment. But in recent weeks, Gateway had agreed to, to fund more than $24 million for escalators, elevators, and broadcast equipment at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, despite the fact that they don't have enough money for, for these improvements to that facility. So the Cavs are going to front the money, and Gateway will presumably pay them back eventually. So readers probably felt like they were experiencing deja vu here for a couple of reasons. First, We've been in this situation before with Gateway going into debt with the Cavs so they can overspend their budget. When that happened the last time, it ended up resulting in a total renegotiation of the lease. But also because not four years ago, the Cavs completed a $180 million renovation of the arena, which was initially supposed to be $140 million, split 50-50 with taxpayers, and the Cavs agreed to pay the overage. So why weren't these upgrades included in that project back when the Cavs would have had to pay for those cost overruns. Because now we're back to funding capital improvements the way the contract requires. And in a nutshell, that means anything over $500,000 gets paid by Gateway, and there is no cap on those expenses. If Gateway doesn't have the money, they have to come with it, come up with it eventually. And as I said, you know, at the moment, Cavs only have about $10 million left in their, in their pot. So Gateway is is going to be indebted to the team again, and on and on it goes with no end in sight. There was a, a period where the debt got so big that it couldn't be paid, and they renegotiated the lease, exactly. and the Cavs ate it. But what, what's disappointing here, and I'm kicking myself a little bit, we wrote a lot about that Cavs project, and I don't think any of us ever thought, hey, we should look at the list of future expenses just to make sure that there's not something coming ahead. We weren't suspicious enough. But you well, know. also, I want to say we tried to get the current future expected list, you know, and they said it's not a public record. It's, you know, there's it's proprietary. There's, you know, it, you know, that it's completely private. So but back then, if we had raised it, the councils that were approving it could have demanded, you know, in exchange for the 70 million dollars of taxpayer largesse that they would show what the future bills are. And let's face it, the government had a duty to do that before they spend the 70 million of taxpayer dollars locking up that that much needed cash. They should have said, hey, what's ahead that we can pull into this project now and cut some bells and whistles? Mm -hmm. So there's a failure of the watchdogs on this, including us, I hate to say. Uh, it's just a bad situation. Uh, but there is no money. Gateway does not have a taxing authority. The county has no money and the city has no money. So this debt's going to ride for a while. And ultimately, I don't know how it gets paid. That's right. Right. And and frankly, I don't know. I, I was thinking about this. Is is it time that we don't reapprove the syntax when it comes up again? Is Should we not be? I mean, what happens if we vote that down? Does it wow. finally force the pro teams to to cough up the money for these, these no, we'll stadiums? No, we'll lose a team. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's no end of Oklahoma cities out there that would sell their souls to get a professional, another professional sports team. So if we ever did that right now, we'd get blackmailed. That's what Ken Silliman seemed mm -hmm. to say, the head of Gateway, longtime city official said in the story this needs a federal fix. The, the right. states can't fix it. The, the federal government could basically prohibit the use of public money on stadiums or something. But until there's something that levels that playing field, we continue to get blackmailed. I think Cleveland may reach a point where it says we can't have all three teams. 
we're the, the smallest city in America that has three professional sports teams. And I don't know that we can continue to afford it with all the expenses that we have here. Which one do we want to dump? <laughs> well, it won't be, I can tell you, it won't be the Browns. Uh, or the, the Browns Guardians. Are, yeah, I, I, yeah, I just don't see it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Steve Litt, a, our, our critic, our architecture and art critic, and a former Shaker Heights resident, reviews the new book about Shaker Heights' history of trying to be a leader in race relations. It's called Dreamtown. Lisa, who wrote it and what does Steve say about it? Yeah, um, and I'm a Shaker Heights native as well, and my family was front and center in the integration wars in the 60s. But yeah, the book is called Dreamtown, Shaker Heights and the Quest for Racial Equality by Laura Meckler, who is a Shaker Heights native and a Washington Post reporter. And she, she basically started in the 19th century, you know, with the development of Shaker Heights, you know, that used to be the North Union Shakers community. And it became a garden suburb, but it was whites only back then. They actually required home buyers to sign private covenants that would keep out what they called undesirables. And then she talks about the 1950s and the 1960s when activists actually worked to avert panic selling by whites when middle-class blacks started moving in. They provided financial incentives for whites to buy homes in areas that were adjacent to the city of Cleveland. They also banned for sale signs on front yards. And white residents did proxy purchases for black buyers, which is exactly how my family got into Shaker. We had a Jewish man buy the house for us by proxy. We were actually the first black children in Mercer Elementary, which was the easternmost elementary school in Cleveland back then. Really? Mm -hmm. You were the first black children in that school? In 1962. Yes, we were. Wow. And, um, uh, back then they weren't selling to blacks east of Lee Road. Um, and then in the 1970s, they started busing among the nine elementary schools to solve racial imbalances because the further west you go, the more racially diverse it was. But as schools started closing, uh, Westside, Ludlow, and Moreland kids were bused to Mercer, but they felt that there were inequalities in that. She also talked about tracking and leveling, which divided students in middle school and onward based on perceived academic abilities. They found that students, black students were tracked in less challenging classes, while white kids were encouraged to take AP classes. And she goes all the way through right about 2020, when the pandemic, they tried to dismantle this tracking process. Also, as I recall, after you got the house, there was some follow-up to that, that that caused problems for your family, right? Like, was there a fire or was there? Oh, something? no, that was my grandfather. Yeah, oh, my grandfather. Yeah, my grandfather was the first black, you know, that was the first black family in Cleveland in Wade Park. But, oh, you know, okay. in Shaker, yeah, I mean... But our, it was the Jewish neighbors that reached out to us. They they wanted to make us feel welcome when we arrived in 1962. Wow. Fascinating. Check out Steve's review and check out the book you're listening to today in Ohio. After seeing how quickly flames consumed the Hawaiian town of Lahaina, we wondered whether a fire buffeted by high winds could occur here. Laura, the answer offers some assurance to Northeast Ohio. Yeah, the answer is no, thank goodness. Cuyahoga County has a low risk of wildfire, lower than 94% of the counties in the country. And that main reason is probably the wind, because to, to get this kind of fire spreading, you need huge amounts of wind. And then speeds of 72 to 95 miles an hour is a, is a level 
the lowest level of hurricane, a category one. And in you know, Cleveland, if we're going to get winds that high, we're going to have rain with it. And it comes very humid air before it storms. And also we've got, um, we don't have the same number of trees, even though we think we have a lot of trees. It's not like, you know, upper Canada or, you know, like Yellowknife that's being destroyed right now by wildfires. We just don't have that same kind of proximity to forest and the winds needed to, to really kick up to get that moving. Yeah, I mean, Lahaina didn't have a lot of trees in the town. It was that thing, the fuel was the wood, the wooden houses, which we have a lot of. But it, the assurance is that we, if we get wind like that, it's, it's coming with a lot of rain and we'll keep the fires from going. Um, I guess that's one of the benefits of having powerful storms in Cleveland. <laughs> we don't get those dry winds that uh, that can be so devastating. It is really scary, though, because you never would have thought Maui was able. I guess they knew, right? They'd have reports, and but like as an outsider, I just thought of it as very like a lush rainforest kind, you know, like and water everywhere. You wouldn't have thought uh, that it could have just jumped that fast. And it's a reminder to to be aware. Yeah, I didn't realize how fast the fire could move from house to house, just sweeping up the whole town. It was uh, staggering in its speed. But we wanted to assure people that it's unlikely here. You're listening to Today in Ohio. An airline passenger who posted a Kafka-esque story about his mission to buy an airline ticket at a counter in Cleveland Hopkins International Airport set us down an interesting path. It ended with some really good advice about how to make cheap flights at the airport even cheaper. Layla, what is the story? It turns out that for some ultra-low-cost airlines, namely Spirit and Frontier, which operate out of Cleveland Hopkins, and Allegiant and Breeze, which fly from the Akron-Canton airport, if you buy your tickets at the airport instead of online, you can save even more money on your flight. And these are already notoriously cheap flights, but you can still shave off 150 200 bucks on a pair of round-trip tickets. Susan Glazer writes that, that those four carriers I mentioned make most of their revenue from extra charges for baggage, seat assignments, and other things. But the in-person savings is actually an unintended consequence of another fee, which is essentially an online reservation fee that these ultra-low-cost airline, airlines also assess although most customers probably don't even know that this exists. The airlines call it by different names. Spirit calls it a passenger usage charge. Frontier uses the term carrier interface charge and so on. One of the benefits to the airlines of all these optional fees is that they keep the carrier's tax burden pretty low. Airlines only pay taxes on airfares, not these optional fees. So that incentivizes some airlines to keep fares low and just add more and more fees to boost their revenue. Pretty tricky. But to make the fee truly optional, you have to give travelers a way to avoid it. And when it comes to the online reservation fee, you can avoid it by buying your ticket at the counter. Yeah, but that guy who wrote about it on Reddit, they kept sending him hither and yon because they didn't want him to waive that fee. I mean, it was it was a nightmare. He was upstairs. Then he goes downstairs. Then they send it back upstairs. And he was fit to be tied. And it was a great little account of his determination to get that fee free ticket. Uh, so it's not the easiest thing to do, no. but if you write about it on Reddit, it brings a lot of attention <laughs> to Frontier. Yeah, they do not make it easy for travelers to avail themselves of this option. Some carriers 
only let you buy tickets at the counter during limited windows of opportunity. The lines get really long, the staff get really grouchy, and sometimes they send you like this guy experience on this goose chase from counter to counter. So it sounds like a real pain, and sometimes it can take hours out of your day. So it's a question of how much your time is worth to you. Well, he just wasn't going to take no for an answer. He would wait in the line, get to the front <laughs> of the line, and they would jerk him around. It shouldn't be allowed, but at least people know now that if they want to save a few bucks, they can do it. I'm a little bit surprised that Sean McDonald did not come up with this first. <laughs> <laughs> I, the Breeze one was, I think it was Breeze. It was like 10 to noon on Tuesdays. It was the only time they sold the flights. So I'm surprised they gave us that information if they're really trying to keep people away. But read Susan's story if you're interested in doing it because she has the tips on when, when and where. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Amelia Sykes' Republican opponent in the last congressional election is not going to be her opponent next time around, even though she had already started a campaign. Lisa, what changed her mind? Yeah, attorney Madison Jessiato Gilbert is moving on up. She has dropped her 2024 candidacy for the 13th Congressional District. She has accepted a job as national spokeswoman for the Republican National Committee. Uh, she ran against Sykes last November and actually got 47% of the vote. She was endorsed by Trump in that election. Her campaign website for now is still active. She filed as a candidate back in February, but on the website, online donations have been disabled, so I'm sure the site will come down pretty soon. But Jesse Otto Gilbert uh, operated the Seven Hills Golf Club in Hartville, which is now for sale, with her husband, Marcus Gilbert, who's a former NFL offensive tackle. She was a press secretary for Trump's 2016 inauguration. She was the co-chair for Women for Trump re-election campaign. She was also a TV political commentator and an op-ed writer. Yeah, it's interesting that she's not going to, to run because she didn't lose by a, a horrible margin. No, she, she didn't. Yeah, so that it, it's a district that actually could be won, and she would have been the strongest person to do that. But I guess they think that she's more valuable in the party working up at the high level. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio's unemployment rate just keeps dropping. Laura, what's the latest number? Sorry. Um, you think that it can't get any lower, but it's 3.3%. And the reason is they keep readjusting the numbers from June. And then it keeps going down and down and down. But we don't have as many people working as we did before the pandemic. And so that's one reason it's a little bit lower. So I guess it's easier to have it on a lower unemployment. Yeah, it's it's amazing that the economy has stayed pretty, pretty healthy, uh, even though a lot of people have predicted we'd be in a recession by the end of this year. Things are still steaming ahead. Inflation is high and mortgage rates are above 7%. Man, I can't believe how high they have gotten. They added 12,000 jobs in July. So total employment is up to 5,639,000. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. It's a wrap for a longstanding name in movies in Cleveland. Leia, Layla, who is he and what is his legacy? For nearly four decades, John Ewing has been the driving force behind the Cleveland Institute of Arts Cinematheque, but he's retiring after this final year as the director there. He's 72 years old, and he said he's ready to just spend some time taking care of his health and enjoying his grandchildren. The Cinematheque is, is finally at a post-pandemic recovery point, he said, and he feels like it's it's uh, it's time to walk away from it. It's stable enough and he can he can do that comfortably. He said it's really hard though. It's it's like he raised a child into adulthood. 
but it's time to to let it walk on its own is how he phrased it. So the Cinematheque began back in the mid-1980s. There were really very few art house and classic movie theaters in the region at the time. We had the Cedar Lee Theater and the Coventry, both in Cleveland Heights, and the new Mayfield Repertory Cinema in Little Italy. But there were no theaters that hosted the kind of touring film exhibitions that had become popular in big cities like New York or Los Angeles or Chicago. So Ewing was running the Canton Film Society, which was a weekly international film series in his hometown. When he moved to Cleveland in 1983 to pursue a full-time job in the film exhibition industry, and one night at a downtown movie theater, he bumped into Ron Holloway, a film journalist for Variety, who also did some work for George Gunn III, who was a businessman and sports team owner, and he had a passion for foreign films and was particularly interested in distributing Eastern European films in the United States. And Holloway mentioned that George Gunn had always wanted a Cinematheque in Cleveland, and when Holloway learned about... Um, about, you know, Ewing's background, next thing you know, he's the guy who's leading up this, this cinema tech. So the rest is history, and you can read it all in, in our story on cleveland.com. You really have to have respect for somebody that stays in the spot that long. That is a huge investment in of your life in a single cause to make it what it is. That's that's a very valued institution in Cleveland. I don't think it would be if it were not for his long standing efforts. Yes. Uh, yeah. I really do salute that, that kind of commitment. Um, and uh, it's the same commitment yeah. you're making to the plain dealer in cleveland.com, right? <laughs> <laughs> One day I will have uh, probably that many years under my belt. Okay. <laughs> this institution. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That does it for Monday. Later today, though, the editorial board is talking with Maureen O'Connor, who is trying to save Ohio government by getting rid of gerrymandering. I imagine we'll be talking about that conversation on the Tuesday episode. So please be sure to join us then. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening to Today in Ohio.